Well, I am sitting here with uh, Paul Nankara, and I would love for you to introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Okay. Uh, my name is Paul Nankaro. I am the rector of Trinity Church in Stanton. I've been here for about 10 years. Um, for the last couple years, I've also been serving the diocese as the diocesan point person for our Living Local Joining God mission initiative. And for the last year or so, I've been serving as canon theologian for the diocese as well. Interesting. So that's a lot of hats. Yeah. A lot of hats to wear yeah. um, that are kind of woven in between. I'd love to hear more about what a canon theologian is, what you do in that role. Well, in the origin of the word canon um, in church contexts um, goes back to the idea of something that is regular or something that's done according to a rule or a regulum. And um, in the medieval period, it was not uncommon for cathedrals to have clergy living in community connected to the cathedral. And because they kept a rule of life together, they were known as the canons of the cathedral. And because they were the cathedral, they were available to the bishop. So the bishop would often designate certain of those canons at the cathedral to do certain tasks. And that's the origin of phrases like canon to the ordinary for the bishop's main assistant on the diocesan staff. Um, that's the origin of the notion of an honorary canon, uh, a priest or deacon in the diocese who's given um, uh, recognition for years of service uh, by getting, giving the title canon. And the canon theologian then would be someone in the diocese who serves at the bishop's pleasure um, to talk about particular theological topics or to be a resource for theological reflection uh, for different uh, topics or conversations or people within the diocese. So this may be too big of a question um, for this moment, but can you, a big focus of our diocese is mission and being the missional mm -hmm. church. So can you tell me briefly um, why a canon theologian is helpful? That is a great question. And, and I think it has to do with our, our revitalized understanding of mission. And this is language that we've been using in the diocese for uh, several years now. So some of you may have heard it before. It may be familiar to some folks. And, and it may be new uh, to some others. But, but our revitalized understanding of mission is the recognition that God is the principal missionary. You know, we used to think that God called the church and God gave the church a mission in the world. Um, and the revitalized understanding is that, is that God is already at work in the world. God's at work everywhere in the world. God is the one who's principally on mission. And God calls the church to form a community which trains people, strengthens people, encourages people, sometimes holds people feet to the fire. Uh, but, but God calls the church to become a community that then joins God in the mission that God is already doing. So, so as our turn to the missional grows, as we become more of a missional-oriented diocese, um, it becomes more and more important for all the members of the diocese, the bishop, the canons, um, the clergy, the people. It becomes important for all the members of the diocese to become more accustomed to asking the question, what is God doing? If we begin with the belief that God is already at work in the world, God's already, already out there, God's way ahead of us in the neighborhood, 
And our job is to go out there and, and, and find what God is doing so that we can join in with it. Then the key, central, indispensable question is, what is God doing? And that is fundamentally a theological question. The whole root of theology is to, is to look at what has happened in the world, in our experience, in our inner life, in our prayer, in our experience of life and death. I mean, the whole root of theology is to look at what happens and then ask, what is God doing here? Um, and in our Episcopal tradition, we recognize we have some resources to help us ask that question. Scripture is the main, most important resource. Uh, tradition is there. And, and our reason, our ability to think, and also the way we interpret our experience. Um, when Richard Hooker first talked about scripture, tradition, and reason as the sources of authority in the Anglican Church, um, back in the 1600s, the word reason meant more than it does now. Nowadays, you hear the word reason, most people do, and they think it means logic and calculation um, and, and what the Vulcans on you know, Star Trek do, you know, that's reason. But when Hooker used the word, reason meant something much more like the human capacity to reflect reality. So logic, rationality, but also imagination, also our interpretive skills, also the empathy with which we can mirror someone else's feelings in our own understanding. All of those are part of the, of the, of the historical meaning of the, of the word reason. So in the Episcopal tradition, we say we have theological resources in scripture, tradition, and reason. And all of those things help us to ask the most personal pressing question, what is God doing here? Um, so theological reflection, using those resources and conversing with each other, and being able to, to recognize what has the tradition said before us, um, not just our own imaginings, but what, what have other people said about such things before us, uh, so a certain amount of study. Um, all of these things come together in, in helping every member of the diocese be able to ask with confidence, what is God doing here? So that I can know what I can join in, what my community can join in, in order to do God's mission. So I think theology is a really indispensable part of being a, a, a living, exciting, missional church. That's fascinating. I think the um, I don't know, there can be the dichotomy of um, theology as an academic pursuit versus practical mm -hmm. theology. I mean, you even saw that in seminary, mm -hmm. um, that you had the academic and systematic theologians who kind of sat at their own table, and then you had the practical theologians. Uh, and I think it's beautiful how you're showing that the two are necessarily intertwined. Well, that's always been very important to me. Um, I noticed that in seminary as well, and when I went to graduate school for a PhD in theology, I noticed that all over the place. Uh, the faculty members, a lot of the students were very much the academic theologians. Um, and it wasn't that they were divorced from the concerns of the world. They were very concerned about the world. Uh, Vanderbilt University in the 1990s was a center of progressive theology. Um, Sally McFaig was there at that time, and she taught about theology of nature. And her sense of the importance of theology was that it would become a catalyst for activism. So a lot of political movement to, to change the laws about how we treat the environment. Um, so it wasn't as if the academic theology was very, very divorced from the real world. 
Um, but what I think I didn't see as much in the ac academic setting was how theology is a resource for deeply personal reflection that then can lead to deeply personal commitment to some of that political action. Um, university theology stays at a fairly abstract level. So even when it gets activist, it's still very abstract activism. Um, and the sense of, of theology as a personal discipline that makes a real difference to how you feel and, and how you behave and who you are, um, that was something that was not as evident in, in the university. And I think that's a lot of what, what a lot of people think theology is about. It's very abstract, it's very cerebral. Um, but you know, it's worth remembering that in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, uh, especially, especially in the formative time of the church, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, theology was a discipline that prepared you for theophany. It was thinking about God as hard as you could and, and, and carefully as you could and logically as you could, but thinking about God was what moved you into knowing the presence of God. So that when theology begins to be a springboard into prayer, that's when I think, that, that's the part of theology I'm interested in. Yeah, and it sounds like your work um, and the work of living local joining God, uh, we probably wouldn't say it like this outright, but it's uh, equipping people in our parishes to be theologians, Oh yeah, to be practical theologians in their neighborhood. Yeah, I would think so very much. Yeah. Again, that language can be off-putting to people because a lot of people think theology is dry and boring and, and belongs in universities, if they're. Um, but yeah, theology is a living discipline, as a way of, of being able to ask and have some confidence in, a in answering, what is God doing here? I, I think that's an important part of being Christian. So yeah, a lot of living local joining God is about equipping people to be theologians in their neighborhoods. Yeah, well, wonderful. So we're gonna shift now to um, the three questions we ask everyone mm -hmm. on the Your Story podcast. Uh, so the first one is, can you tell me a story of a time you felt a call from God? Sure, um, and being a theologian, I'm gonna preface this with a little bit of theology. One of the things I believe as a theological principle is that God is calling us all the time. You know, a lot of times when people talk about whether or not they feel a call from God, often when they say they don't feel a call from God, I think a lot of times people assume that being called by God means the heavens opening up and a voice speaking and this, and this non-ordinary experience that is unlike anything else that's ever happened to them. I don't deny that happens. But I think as a, as a theological principle, as part of my understanding of how God creates in the world, that God is calling us all the time. Every single moment of experience happens because God has called it into being. The fact that you and I are sitting here having this conversation is because God has called us here. The fact that you're taking this next breath is because God is calling you to take that breath, right? So I believe as a theological principle that God is calling every single moment into being. There is no time or place that is apart from God's call. The fact is that in human beings, in human psychology, that continuing call of God is usually well below the threshold of consciousness. It's like you're not paying attention to your heart beating, right? It's just doing it. You're not paying attention to God calling this moment into existence. It's just happening. But I do think there are moments in human experience where that sense of being called by God becomes powerful enough to leap over the threshold of consciousness and we become aware of it. 
Um, and sometimes those are big, huge calls, like, like Abraham being called to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and change his entire life, or, or Paul encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Those, those big calls do happen, obviously. But I also think there are these momentary calls from God that visit us in all kinds of times and places. And one of my favorite experiences of that happened a couple of years ago. I was on vacation. I was taking a bicycle tour um, in Utah. And I was riding a road in Bryce Canyon National Park. It was a road in between two different places where you could look out over the canyon. Um, and at this particular moment, I was absolutely alone. The other bicyclists were before or behind me. There were no cars on the road. There was not another human being in sight. It was me and the bicycle and the road. And I looked up, and to my right, across a forested section, there were these pink sandstone cliffs rising up. And to my left, by the side of the road, the same pink sandstone was in cliffs falling down. So I was right on the edge of these of these cliffs on either side and I was so caught up with the beauty of it just the the intensity of the of the beauty f flowing into existence in these trees and rocks and sky and clouds and and I realized at the moment that it wasn't enough just to recognize the beauty I was being called to give thanks for that beauty I was being called to praise God for that beauty in that moment. Now, I was on a bicycle, and this was an uphill road, and I was already breathing kind of heavily just to keep going. Um, and yet, I, I just, I started singing. I just burst out, nope, there was nobody there to hear me, which is you know, why I did it. <laughs> I would not have done this with their other bicyclists there. I was all alone on this road, and I was riding uphill singing, blessed be God, and just kept on doing that. Um, and it was, it was the joy of the moment, it was the beauty of the moment, but it was very definitely a sense of being called to respond to the beauty of that reality with something wonderful of my own. I think that was being called by God. Yeah. I've heard um, someone say the idea of being called is that I can't not do this, mm -hmm. yeah. um, whatever it's be, you're being called to. So in that moment, you couldn't help but exactly. praise. Exactly. Yeah. It, and nothing else was adequate. Yeah. That's wonderful. Okay. Question number two. Um, can you tell me a story or a portion of scripture that challenges you? Something that uh, either brings you up short or... Um, I think one of the most challenging passages that I've encountered in scripture is in the book of Jeremiah. It happens three times in Jeremiah, but I, I'm thinking of chapter 7, if you want to go look it up. But there are these moments in, in the book of Jeremiah where God tells the prophet not even to pray for the people. And that terrifies me. You know, I understand the history, I understand the context, I know Jeremiah's message. The people of Jerusalem had committed apostasy. They had worshipped other gods. They brought idols into the temple. They had treated each other unfairly, unjustly. Um, you know, a lot of us today can think that our worship of God and our political and economic behavior are in different watertight compartments. 
Uh, they, they should influence each other, yes, but we think that worship is one thing and how we conduct ourselves in the world is another. Well, for Jeremiah, for his point of view, they were all deeply wrapped up with each other. If you worshipped other gods, you would therefore be unjust to your neighbor. And if you were truly just and, and, and compassionate and peaceable with your neighbor, that would lead you to worship the one God. I mean, for Jeremiah, that was, those that were, were indivisible. So when God sends Jeremiah to proclaim to the people of Jerusalem, they've worshipped idols, they've turned away from God, they've treated each other unjustly, that's all of a piece. And because it had reached such a pitch, God sent Jeremiah to say, your downfall is inevitable. The Babylonians are going to come, they are going to lay siege to you, they're going to conquer your city, they're going to carry off into exile the upper classes of your citizenry. You can't get out of it, it's going to happen. I get all that. I understand that's part of God's way in the history. I understand that was the moment. But still, to come to this place. And Jeremiah did not want to be such a bad news prophet. I mean, he, he wanted good for his people. But he could only speak. He was called. He could, he could not not do what God sent him to do. So he proclaimed the difficult message. And he suffered for it. Um, and yet, even when he wanted to intercede for his people, God said, don't even pray for them. And, you know, that really challenges me. That, that, that terrifies me. Because I've always thought about myself that no matter what else, I can pray. Now, I know that can be a cop-out. You know, when, when there's a mass shooting and the politicians say, you're in our thoughts and prayers, but they never do anything about the guns, I know that's a cop-out. But speaking personally for myself, I've always believed that whatever else, I can pray. If there's somebody in the parish who is angry at me, and I don't know how to make it right again, I can still pray for them. If there's somebody I'm angry at, and I'm not yet ready to go and ask for forgiveness, I can still at least pray for the inspiration to be ready to go and ask forgiveness. But to imagine that there's a moment when God would say, don't pray. To imagine that someone like Jeremiah, someone like me, could reach a point where I'm so twisted up inside that I think God is telling me not to pray. That's really challenging. Um, that, for me, would sort of pull the rug out from underneath everything. I am very glad that in the book of Jeremiah, when the exile comes and Jerusalem falls, God does tell Jeremiah to pray for his people and God does tell Jeremiah to send a letter to them and say, have lives for yourselves in Babylon. Life goes on. Keep faithful. Keep praying to God. So I know there's a way out. <laughs> and the way out is to pray. But it's that one chilling moment where God says, don't even pray for them. That challenges me deeply. Yeah. And the idea, um, I mean, there's a number of times in Scripture uh, where at least this happens to me, but the idea that there won't be a nice bow mm -hmm. put on an interaction with God. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it, it can be a cop-out to um, to say, you know, God's ways are not our ways. That's the easy answer. Um, but it, it seems like the answer in this moment that, that there is no, you know, neat theological explanation. And I think in a way that goes to... to a, an issue a lot of people have with prayer. Um, as a matter of fact, that is one of the popular uh, reasons for becoming atheist. 
I prayed to God and nothing happened. I prayed for the health of the person I love and they died anyway, so there's no God, so now I'm an atheist. I, mean, I do hear that kind of rhetoric around. Um, and I understand it. Um, but I also think there's a deeper understanding of prayer, that prayer is essentially dialogue with God. Prayer is, is being honest with God about what you really deeply need and want. Um, and then not expecting it's just going to happen immediately, but being open to the fact that God may lead you in your prayer and meditation to a deeper understanding of loss, that God's response may not always be to fix the situation, but to help you grow. Uh, but it's still a dialogue. It's still praying. Um, even when there's not a nice bow tied up on a prayer interaction, even when God's answer seems to be no, even when there seems to be no answer at all, even, even when prayer seems like you're just throwing words out into the void, for me, there's always the continuing possibility to keep doing it. That, that prayer is a relationship and a silent or recalcitrant, as God may seem at the moment, there's going to be something later. Um, and therefore, this moment in Scripture where not even prayer is available, um, that's, that's a kind of silence that, that seems to me to have no other place in Scripture. Mm -hmm. And I, sometimes I wonder why it's there. Yeah. And that's part of what challenges me so much about that. Well, moving, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> we could talk about that forever. Yeah, we um, could. <laughs> so many questions. Um, so we'll move to the next question uh, that we usually ask, which is, um, what's a story from your faith community? And mm -hmm. for you, like we said, you wear a lot of hats. So it can be in your work in the parish or as canon theologian or with um, living local joining God. But what's a story that's giving you life in this moment? There are a lot of such stories, um, but the one I think I can actually manage to tell in a short compass, a um, couple of days ago, I was on my way out to, uh, to a meeting, um, and as I was leaving the rectory here at Trinity, I saw just down the block a couple people get out of a car carrying five or six or seven boxes of donuts. And I recognized that that was from a, a new donut shop here in town. Uh, they've been in business for a few months now. Um, and it wasn't very long ago that they called us and said, we would like to bring our daily leftover donuts to Trinity to be served at your noon lunch. And we said, sure, fine, bring them. Um, and so that particular morning, I saw these people carrying these box, uh, boxes of donuts. I mean, they weren't day old. They were still today's donuts, but it was after the main sale period. And they were bringing them to share here. Um, it's a very simple thing. It's a very small thing. Um, and, you know, it, they're donuts. They're fat and sugar. And we try to make sure that the noon lunch we serve here is a healthy lunch. So, you know, we, we try to use the donuts judiciously. Um, but what really impressed me as I, as I saw that, those boxes of donuts coming in and thought about what that meant, what really impressed me is that the donut shop called us because they had heard about noon lunch. Because noon lunch is really widely connected through this community. Um, for a couple years now, 
we have been receiving the leftovers of the Stanton Farmers Market. We have a farmers market that's held in a business parking lot a block or two from the church every Saturday. And for a couple years now, a lot of those farmers who bring their stuff in, what they don't sell at Saturday, they bundle up and it's brought over to Trinity for noon lunch. Um, Trinity hosts the noon lunch. We have the kitchen, we have the serving hall, we have the tables and the chairs. Um, but the lunches are actually cooked and prepared and served by a wide variety of people. There are teams of lunch folks who come from other churches, from agencies within the town. There are about 14 different entities that all cooperate uh, on their particular day to, to make noon lunch happen here at Trinity. Um, and we get some money, we get some food from the food bank. There are various groups that contribute to it. Um, like I said, we have farmer's market, we now have donuts. Um, and, and there are a number of people in town who know that this is a place they can come and, and receive a hot meal with no questions and with no strings. Um, and just, just seeing those donuts come into the church reminded me how far the network goes into Stanton um, that's centered on noon lunch. How many people get touched by this. Uh, people who are served the lunch and people who come to serve the lunch. Um, and the fact that a very simple gesture can grow to the point where it encompasses that many people. Trinity's been serving lunch for years and years and years, decades. And it all began when a man came into the church office about lunchtime. And the secretary was sitting at her desk eating her sandwich and the man said he was hungry and the secretary said well you can have half of my sandwich and after that got she got to thinking what more could we do and she got a few people together and now decades later we're this network that stretches all through the town um and and it, what, what what that spoke to me about is the way small gestures over time connecting more people become these networks that reach out through many parts of the community. Um, and that is a real sign of hope. I think that's, that's going out into the neighborhood in the mission of God in, in some really uh, powerful ways. Um, and not doing it solo. Not, you know, we are the church and we're here to do good. But we got a room, we got a kitchen, we got an opportunity. You all come together and we'll figure out how we can do something good together. Um, and that, I think, is a, is a very hopeful story of how the church can be. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time uh, to talk with me, and thank you for sharing your story. You're very welcome. Thank you, Connor.